0: Father, we are thankful that uh, you were with us every moment. We are thankful that your eye is always upon us with undivided attention. You said, I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. Uh, You told David that after he confessed his great sin, and he thought he was uh, finished and But you said, I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you shall go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. And somehow, and this is way beyond our comprehension, you give each of us your undivided attention. Now, we we can't even begin to compute that. But your, your mind never wanders. You are mindful of us all of the time. And even when we are fatigued and we are worn out and we are tired and we must sleep, you never sleep. You give to your beloved even in their sleep. There are times when we are um, devastated and we get wounded deeply. There are times when the rug is pulled out from under us. There are times of tr- tremendous disappointment and confusion. And in those times, you tell us that you are near to the brokenhearted and you save those who are crushed in spirit. And then there are times when we are just amazed at how you have blessed us and. We are on the mountaintop, and we just are, are kind of overwhelmed with, with, with your goodness and your mercy. But we're not always there, because on this earth, in this life, we couldn't handle undiluted prosperity. We couldn't handle it. It would turn our hearts, and it would get us uh, spiritually flabby. So you then, after a season, will take us back down into the valley and back into the realities of life and the uh, hardships. That's the Christian life. We sometimes think something's wrong when we're there, but something is normal when we are there. Don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, as though some strange thing were happening to you, Peter said. So the fact of the matter, Lord, is that... uh, In in modern-day Christianity, there is a lot of heresy and there is a lot of lying about the Christian life. It is not an easy life. It is not a comfortable life. It is a life full of uh, stress and tension and hardship. But there's a life that is more difficult, and that's the life without you. We never suffer without without your doing a particular work in our lives. It's all purposeful. And once again... Even when we're in hardship, your eye is upon us. You know exactly where we are, and there are moments when we think we're right on the edge of the cliff. You know where we are, and underneath are the arms of Christ. You rescue us, you save us. Uh, Tonight, we ask you, as we look again into the life of David, this great man, this man who uh, had a great heart for you and who was a great sinner. Well, we all relate to that. We all identify with that. We, 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 we want to we wanna have a passion for you as David did. But we also see the depths of sin in our hearts as it, as it was in his. And we cry and are remorseful and repentant when we, we just so often our greatest disappointment is ourselves but what a great savior you are, and what a great forgiver you are, and what a great deliverer. And as with David, you pick us up when we come to you in in, in genuine brokenness and repentance. And with your eye upon us, you direct our steps. We thank you, Lord, that we're on a journey. You will ensure that we finish the journey. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in Christ Jesus. So with that hope, we ask you to instruct us tonight. Give us spiritual food. When we go home tonight, enable us to rest and to rest deeply and to rest well because of who you are. And then give us new mercy and grace in the morning for the next day of the journey. We ask in the great name of Jesus. Amen. We are studying this semester the life of David, and we're looking at David through a little bit different angle. We're looking at the life of David through the men that God brought in his life at different times. Uh, we started with uh, Samuel because Samuel was the one who anointed him as as king, and then we looked at Saul and. Saul was the first king. David was anointed to be the second king without going into too much detail. We contrasted them. David's the authentic leader. Saul is the counterfeit or synthetic leader. David had a heart for God. Saul didn't. Uh, Whenever an authentic leader shows up, a synthetic leader gets defensive and gets threatened and then what the synthetic, has, uh, synthetic leader has to do is to then destroy the authentic leader in order to hold on to their power because the authentic leader, by their character, will reveal who they actually are, uh, a synthetic leader. It's a very threatening situation for a counterfeit synthetic leader to have an authentic leader show up. They just don't know what to do except to try to destroy them. So what happens is when, when David and Saul first, their lives first intersect, it appears that Saul is going to become one of David's great uh, allies and one of his advocates and one of his friends. But uh, it quickly changes. The story is told of two guys who have uh, been friends for a long time, and uh, every summer they take a couple of weeks and go off somewhere, away from the city and away from the corporate life, and uh, they just enjoyed uh, fly fishing, they enjoyed backpacking. And this particular uh, summer, they were up in the Canadian Rockies. And uh, a ranger told them about a, about a pristine, beautiful lake up about 11,000 feet. And they thought, well, tomorrow we're going to go up there. Check it out. They broke camp early. And uh, as they're following this wisp, just a wisp of a trail, they're, they're seeing uh, grizzly bear droppings. And they're fairly fresh. And they're, they're very mindful of what's what the possibilities are, they keep going, and uh, everything's fine, and maybe an hour later they hear the unmistakable roar of a grizzly bear, and it's close. One of the guys immediately sits down on a rock, pulls out his backpack, uh, starts uh, taking off his boots, strapping on his Nike running shoes, and his buddy looks at him, and he says, are you crazy? Are you, what are you doing? He goes, I'm putting on my running shoes. He said, you can't outrun a grizzly. A grizzly can run, outrun a horse. The guy just keeps putting on the shoes. He says, well, you know, I don't have to outrun the grizzly. I just need to outrun you. Now, that's the kind of friend you don't need. Last week, we looked at uh, David and the fact that he was on the run from Saul. And we looked at one of what we call the cave psalms, C-A-V-E, because he was literally hiding out in the caves. And we looked at Psalm 57. And afterwards, one of the guys, we were talking, and he said, hey, how long, how long do you figure David was on the run from Saul? And the answer to that is about 10 years. That's a long haul. That's a long time to be a fugitive. That's a long time to be fleeing. Uh, Turn with me, if you would, to Psalm 142. Psalm 142 is another one of what we would call the cave psalms. And what's happening here, and and, you know, the interesting thing about these cave psalms, we we don't know, if you look at the superscription before verse 1, you'll see that he refers to the fact he was in the cave. You say, well, where was this, when he wrote this psalm, Where was it in the 10 years of running from Saul? the answer to that is we don't know. But what we do know is that at this particular point, David is absolutely worn out. He's fatigued. Uh, He is, uh, we know this, He, he is pretty much at bottom. Note what he says. He says, I cry aloud with my voice to the Lord. Now, once again, see, when you just read that on the page, when you just read those words, the emotion doesn't hit you. So you gotta stop and you gotta think for a minute, you gotta really watch those words. He says, I cry aloud with my voice to the Lord. Uh, you know what that tells me? This is not the kind of prayer that you pray at dinner. Everyone has a default prayer. The food's on the table, it's hot, it's warm. Everyone gets together. All right, listen. Lord bless this food, the nourishment of our bodies in Jesus. What the heck does that mean? You have a default dinner prayer, and so do I. And it just comes out. It's like the Pledge of Allegiance. That pledge of allegiance to the flag, the United States of America. I mean, it just comes out. And, and you know what I'm saying? There are certain prayers we just say. Now, do we mean them? Yeah. Are we thinking about them? Sometimes, not always. This is not that kind of prayer. This is a prayer of desperation. This is a prayer from the gut. This is a prayer of utter exhaustion. This, this guy has had it. He has flat out had it. I cry aloud with what? With my voice. Well, what the hell? What, what the heck else do you cry out with? A tambourine? Of course, I cry out with my voice. He is. <laughs> he is unloading it all on God, because he's desperate. Did that ever happen to you? Yeah, it has. I cry aloud with my voice to the Lord. I make supplication with my voice to the Lord." He's not calm. He's upset. He is worn out. He is absolutely at his wit's end. I pour out my complaint before him. Well, he shouldn't do that. Why not? Well, you shouldn't do it. Why not? Doesn't well, You just shouldn't do that. Who said? He says he did. If that's how you're feeling, Why don't you just go ahead and tell the Lord how you're feeling and get it off your chest? He knows what you're thinking anyway, right? Be honest. If you don't do anything else, just be honest with the Lord. If you're hurting, if you're dying, if you're you're worn out, if you're sick and tired of it all, just tell him. He knows. He knows you're dust. He knows you're worn out. Can't you tell when your kids are just worn out and shot and... Can't you tell when you got a new little baby after a while you figure out when they're you figure out when they're fatigued when they're just worn out and you figure out when they're just whining. Right? You can kind of read their cries. Okay. He says, "I pour out my complaint before him. I declare my trouble before him when my spirit was overwhelmed within me, you knew my path." See, but but even as he is expressing his frustration and his difficult, He is sick and tired of living in these caves. He is sick and tired of being on the run. He is sick and tired of never being able to take a moment's rest. He, it, it, when you've got somebody with a couple thousand soldiers trying to track you down every night for three years, uh, for ten years, it's pretty hard to get a good night's sleep. And if you do sleep, you sleep lightly. And just the slightest noise or the disturbance wakes you up. This guy was, I I think he was always tired because he could never sleep soundly. That is a lousy way to live, is it not? And see, that's where some of you guys are, if the truth were to be known. You weren't that way five years ago because economically you were doing pretty well. But you're not doing all that well right now, you see. When my spirit was overwhelmed within me, you knew my path in the way where I walk. Look to the right and see. There is no one who regards me. There is no escape for me. No one cares for my soul. See, that's the, that's the fatigue coming out. Uh, one observation here that I want to make. Um, this guy is completely out of energy. He is running on absolute fumes. That's it. He's just trying to survive. He's, whatever energy, whatever he has, he's trying to conserve it. He is hanging on by his fingernails. And if, if you have ever been in a situation that completely exhausts you emotionally, because it won't end, it can, be, uh, uh, it can be dealing with cancer. It can be a marriage relationship. And no matter what you do, it just doesn't seem to get better. And it just exhausts you. It can be a situation with, uh, at work where someone is riding you and giving you a hard time. and they're, they're your superior. And they just never let up. It could be a hundred things. It could be a thousand different things. But what it does is it completely exhausts you emotionally. And quite frankly, you don't want to do anything except go home and uh, just zone out and go to bed. And you go to bed and you wake up and you're not even rested. Because even when you're asleep, you're churning. Now this happens, and it happens to men. If you're there right now, And you're saying, wait a minute, he was in this how long? Ten years. Uh, That may not be real encouraging to you. Why is that? Because you say, I don't, see, when we're in these deals, our question is, how long am I going to be in it? That's the normal question. And here's the answer to that. When you're in a particular cave of affliction, when you're in a cave of hardship, as David was, you should know this. God is the one who governs our time in the cave. God is the one who oversees our time of affliction. Uh, It is not random. It's not by chance. It's just not the, the luck of the draw or the lack of luck of the draw, or it's not karma, but you are there by the appointed will of God. And that means this, that means this, that that time in the cave has a beginning it has a middle and it has an end that's how it works there are chapters in our lives and those chapters sometimes they're chapters of great favor and great blessing but but and those we want to never end but here's my question to you those times of great prosperity do they end yes they do uh, just look around yeah, they do end. Read Ecclesiastes. There's, there's, a, there's a season for everything. It's not always perpetual prosperity. Uh, e- even even the, econo- the, the economists will tell you there are economic cycles. But when you're in that cave of affliction and difficulty and hardship, here's, here's the thing that gives you hope. Because, see, the longer you're in it, the more concerned you are, how long am I going to be in this thing? How much longer is this going to go? But know this: there is a beginning, there is a middle, and there is an end. And the question is, well, how close to the end am I? And the answer is, you don't know. Well, and then what happens is you've been, well, my gosh, I don't think I can go through this. I don't, I don't know if I can last another month. I know, I don't know if I can make it another six months. I don't know if I can make it another year. My gosh, what if this goes three more years? What the heck? I can't take that. I can't handle that. And you're right, you can't. When David was at the five year mark of being pursued by Saul. If if the Lord had said to him, you got 5 more years of this. How do you think he would have felt? How, how how and I found this poem 30 years ago. Yeah. It's anonymous. That anonymous could write poems. That guy was unbelievable. One of the greatest writers I've ever read in my life. Listen to this one. When God wants to drill a man and thrill a man and skill a man, when God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part, when he yearns with all his heart to create so great and bold a man that all the world should be amazed, then watch God's methods and watch his ways. How he ruthlessly perfects whom he royally, alex how he hammers him and hurts him and with mighty blows converts him into trial shapes of clay which only god understands while his tortured heart is crying and he lifts beseeching hands how he bends but never breaks when his good he undertakes How he uses whom he chooses. And with every purpose fuses him. By every act induces him to try his splendor out. God knows what he's about. You know what what that's all about? It's about God testing his men. Uh, That that line that stands out to me and has for 30 years. I can't remember all this. You know what I remember? How he ruthlessly perfect. You know what that means? You're going to be in a cave. Now, that's not going to sell a lot of books. That's not going to put you in Madison Square Garden. But it's the truth. And see, it's kind of comforting to know that, isn't it? But once again, the question is, if you're in the cave, and if you're out of the cave, thank God for it. Thank God you're out of the cave. If God's blessing you, just... Isn't that great? Isn't he a good God to do that? And maybe you were in a cave a while back, but he brought you through. But you're out of the cave now. Great. Wonderful. Are you going to be out of the cave the rest of your life? Probably not. Because we go in caves and we come out, then we go in caves and come out. That's kind of how it works. That's how you build spiritual muscle. But when you're in the cave, what's overwhelming to you, and, and what does he say in Psalm 142? When my spirit was overwhelmed. I'm out of energy, and when I think about how much longer I might be in this, it absolutely overwhelms me. I can't handle this. No, you can't. So then, how do you get through it? I have—I'm very literary tonight. I have a second poem, which my daughter Rachel gave to me, and uh, it's called "Hour by Hour," written by George Klingel. Who was actually a woman called Georgiana Holmes. But back when she wrote it, women couldn't be published. So she took the name of a man to get her poem published. A wise lady wrote these words: "One single day is not much to look upon. There is some way of passing hours of such a limit." We can face a single day, but place too many days before our sad eyes, too many days for smothered sighs, and we lose heart. God broke the years into hours and days. That hour by hour and day by day, just going on a little way, we might be able all along keep quite strong. Should all the weights of life be laid across our shoulders and the future rife with woe and struggle meet us face to face at just one place, Uh, we could not go. Our feet would stop, and so God lays a little on us every day. And never, I believe, on all the way will burdens bear so deep or pathways lie so steep? But if we can go, if by God's power we only bear the burden of an hour. See, the question is, if this is true, if the Christian life is full of suffering, and it is, it's hard to tell you that, but it is. so man, and, and when you're worn out where David was and you're in the cave, he said, I don't know how long it's going to take this. How the heck? What if it's three more months? What if it's, what, what if it's this? What if it's... Two years? What if it's five years? I had a guy say to me this week, and I respect this guy's walk tremendously, and he is beaten down, and he's worn down, and I see this guy with right priorities in his life. I admire him greatly, but he's worn out. And one of his concerns is that finally, after years and years and years of putting in work and work and work and work, which, quite frankly, he is uh, <laughs> he's exhausted from, Now, all of this is starting to come together. And what scares him is, as these opportunities are coming together, he's not sure he's got the strength to take it on. Because he's exhausted. Isn't that interesting? But in Deuteronomy, and you say, where in Deuteronomy? And I don't have a clue. But somewhere in Deuteronomy, you know what it says? It says, in the old King James, As thy days, so shall thy strength be. So how do you get through a cave? Uh, Just hour by hour. You ever been in a cave? And when you started in the cave, you thought, I'll never get through this? And did the Lord get you through it? Yeah? And how did he get you through it? hour by hour, day by day. When I went through that depression in my early 30s, I'd wake up in the morning, and there was such a heaviness on my chest and such a depression in my heart. I wasn't, I wasn't thinking I want to make it through the day. When I would wake up early in the morning, I was thinking, Lord, help me make it to lunch. Just let me make it through the next three or four hours. Just let me get to lunch. I'll take an early lunch. Just let me, let me, let me just get to an early lunch. Ten years. So your cave, my question is, how long have you been there? Just hour by hour, day by day. As thy days, so shall thy so shall strength be. Now, in the middle of all this, in the middle of all this, what God will do from time to time is, he will bring other people into our lives. And you know what these people will do? They'll encourage us. Uh, turn with me to 2 Corinthians, if you would. We're studying David, but I haven't gotten to David yet. Well, actually I have. He's in the cave. You know who else was in a cave? Paul. A lot of times I read these guys in the Bible, and you know what's happening? They're in the caves. Uh, if you look at Paul in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verse 8, he says, We do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life itself. Let's break that down a little bit. So what does Paul say? Uh, We want you not to be unaware of our affliction that happened in Asia. Now watch this. Watch his description. We were burdened excessively. That's David in the cave. We were burdened excessively, watch this, beyond our strength. His spirit was overwhelmed. He didn't think he could go on. He's running on fumes. He's hanging by his fingernails. Beyond our strength. You say, wait a minute, I thought thought God will never give you more than you can handle. What he does is, he he gives you additional strength to handle the additional burden. But he does it hour by hour. Watch this. We were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life itself. If Paul could die, he wanted to die. Look at uh, chapter 4, verse 5. This is what happens when you're in a cave. He says, we are afflicted in every way. I, I don't see an area of my life where I'm not hurting. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Watch this. We are perplexed. You ever get perplexed at what God's doing? You ever get perplexed at where you are in life? You ever get perplexed at how things are working out for you? Paul was, but not despairing. Why? Because he knew something. He knew something about God. Uh, uh, Look at uh, 4.16. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Why why doesn't he lose heart? Because he knows that the Lord Jesus is at work in his life. Um, Though our outer man is decaying, our inner man is being renewed. What? Day by day. It's a day-by-day process. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Look at verse 7. We walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and be home with the Lord. If I had it up to me, I'd check out of here and go be with the Lord because the pain is so great and I'm so fatigued and I'm so overwhelmed. Aren't you glad you came tonight? But listen, if the truth were to be known, there are a lot of guys in here who are dying. And not real enthusiastic about life. Why? Because you're worn out, because you're tired, and it's tough. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5. For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest. Watch this. We were afflicted on every side. There it is again. And then then I'm so grateful he said this. We are afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within. I got trouble with people. I got people problems. I got people issues. Conflicts without. You know what? Who wants conflict? Who needs it? He was sick and tired of conflict. And, and and this guy was a stud. I mean, he would take on whoever he needed to take on if, if if a principal were involved. But you know what? You get worn down, you get beat up. You just get you just you just get fatigued. Conflict's without, fear's within. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of fear in this room. Although we can't look like it, because we're guys. But we all have our fears. So much of the Christian life is fighting off fear. Fear of the future, fear of your financial future, fear of what your kids are doing, decisions they're making. Why won't they listen? I can't believe they just, just fear, just fear. Now watch this, watch this. So I would make the case that this guy is in a cave, a cave of circumstance. If David was in a literal cave, this guy was in a cave of circumstances. All right? Now watch this. Watch this. Verse 6. But God, who comforts the depressed. <laughs> now watch this. God comforts the depressed. All right, how does God do that? Watch this. He comforted us by the coming of Titus sometimes what God will do is when you're just barely hanging on you know what he'll do he'll bring into your life an authentic friend he'll bring into your life someone who gets you he'll bring into your life someone who is for you he'll bring into your life someone who is on your team I remember years ago when um, it was it was a very bleak time for me because um the guy who I considered my best friend turned on me. There had been a, a conflict and among some leadership and As the meeting went on, it got more and more exacerbated, and I was going out of town for a week the next day with Mary, and I said, you know, guys, I'm going to cancel that trip, because this is no time for me to be leaving. And they said, no, that's fine. We'll just put this on hold till you get back. Well, they put it on hold till I left the next day. And then went to my best friend, who they knew, and talked with him. And then I got a phone call about three days later. And all hell had broken loose. Maybe something like that's happened to you. Someone's betrayed you, someone you thought you could trust. And you know what's interesting? When that happened to me, these guys were all committed Christians. When that happened to me, you know what I decided? I'm never trusting anybody again. Especially if they got a fish on their car. <laughs> if they're a Christian, are you are you kidding me? And I'd been, uh, I, I, I was, uh, when that happened to me, I said, that's it. I mean, I got my immediate family, and I'm not trusting anybody else ever again. And maybe a couple months later, I, I was at a ministry conference, and I sat next to a guy from another state, and within about 20 minutes, we just, boom. We just connected. We just connected. And uh, had lunch, and then we, we spent the whole three days ago. And, uh, and and there was something about him, and then he, we just started talking. And then, you know, at one point I, I said, well, you know, this is kind of, I was honest. See, I was a little leery being honest because I'd been honest with some people and uh, they'd come after me. You see, these Iron Man groups are wonderful groups. Accountability groups are great groups. Please hear that. A lot of times, guys go into groups like that and immediately think there's going to be a connection. I thought it was interesting, in Columbia, Missouri, you were in that group for how many years? 15 years. And what happened, see, here's what happened. And I meet guys all the time. Well, I've been in group 12 years. I've been in a group. I, I got an email from a friend of mine, and he was saying, yeah, our group's been going for 11 years now. Well, those guys are deeper now than they were when they started. Because, see, when you first get to know each other, you're feeling each other out. Can I trust these guys? Am I safe? If I share something, is it going to stay here? You know what I'm saying? So oftentimes we get in griefs when we have these high expectations. Uh, that takes a while. You have to be able, here's what I'm saying, you have to be able to trust somebody to share your life with them. And you just don't unload it all because you don't know what they're going to do, especially if you've been wounded. So Paul's depressed, and what does God do? God comforts him with the coming of Titus. And Titus played a key role in Paul's life at a key time. In David's life, there was another guy who played a key role of being a friend and encouraging him and coming along at the right time and saying, I'm on your team, I'm for you, I believe in you. You know what that guy's name was? Jonathan. And he was the son of David's enemy, Saul. Is that not wild? It is wild. (laughs) God works providentially. God works strangely, does he not? Yes, he does. so turn with me back to 1 Samuel. This is one of the great, um, this is one of the great friendships in all the bible and, and can we say this about friendships you 've heard this uh, quality grade a friendships are few and far between if you 've got if you get a friend like this once or twice in your life, you're blessed. Um, they don't come along every day. So we want to ask the question. We want to ask some questions about Jonathan. And once again, give me a second. Let me get organized here. By the way, i got a couple quotes on friendship. You've heard this one. Benjamin Franklin said, we must hang together or we shall surely hang separately. George Carlin, the great theologian. (laughs) One good reason to only maintain a small circle of friends is that three out of four murders are committed by people who know the victim. Harry Truman said, you want a friend in Washington? Get a dog. Oscar Wilde said, a true friend stabbed you in the front. And you know what? There's some truth to that. There is some truth to that. Is there not? Proverbs says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. If you've got a friend that'll tell you what you don't want to hear, but see, they have the credibility that you know they're for you. And they're not going to go talk behind your back. They're not going to say, yeah, yeah, oh, we'll put this on hold and we'll handle it when you get back. No, no, no. They'll stab you right in the front. And they'll speak the truth in what? In love. They're for you. They're not against you, they're for you. That's a friend. A friend isn't the guy who tells you what you want to hear. A friend is the guy who tells you, who's on, you know he's on your team, but he shoots straight with you. You see? And you, straight, you shoot straight with him. Uh, let, let, let's go to 1 Samuel 14. So we've already, we've already said, now who was, who was Jonathan? Jonathan was uh, the son of Saul. But, in his own, but he was very different from his dad. Um. His dad was an. His dad was a synthetic leader. Jonathan, however, was an authentic leader. And really, we see this in in First uh, Samuel fourteen. Right out of the blocks, he's introduced. And what we find out in in. Uh, I've been the First Chronicles. I've been the First Kings. And what I want to do, guys is go to 1 Samuel. Page 264. Page 264. Thank you, Jim. <laughs> chapter 14 is all about the fact that Jonathan was a great warrior. And I'll just it's a long chapter. Let me just summarize it for you. They're, the Philistines are the arch enemies of, the, of, of Israel at this time. They're always driving them nuts. They, they have overwhelmed them. And one of the problems is, is that uh, if you look in the previous chapter in verse 19, Now no blacksmith could be found in all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, Otherwise the Hebrews will make swords or spears. Isn't that wild? So there were no swords or spears that were, that were sharp. It was sort of a gun control thing. Quite frankly. Only the Philistines. So if you wanted something, if you, wanted, uh, you had a sword and you wanted it sharpened, You'd have to go to one of the Philistine guys, and then what are they going to do? They're going to confiscate your sword. You see? Uh, Verse 20. So all Israel went down to the Philistines, each to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, and his hoe. These These guys were just dominating them. Well, it just continues, and they're at war going back and forth. And in chapter 14, what happens is, is that Jonathan and his armor bearer, he's got armor because he's the son of the king and he's got a sword. He says to this guy, Hey, why don't we go up attack why don't we go attack that Philistine garrison? Let's go take those suckers. Look at verse six. Jonathan said to the young man who was carrying his armor, Come let us cross over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. Perhaps the Lord will work for us. For the Lord is not restrained to save by many or by few. Hey, you know what? We don't have three hundred, we don't have six thousand. But it's you and me. You want to go up there and take those suckers? The Lord could do it for us. Now see, there's an authentic leader, there's a man of faith, there's a man who trusts in God, there's a man who has godly courage, and a man who has a great big God. Would you agree? And he's willing to put himself on the line to trust God completely and totally. And so what happens, he goes up there and he cleans those suckers' clock. And the Philistines all get into confusion. That's what's in chapter 14. Um, That's when Jonathan comes on the scene. Jonathan was a great warrior. He was a great man of God. He had a genuine heart for God. Um, That's the first time we meet this guy. Then go over to 1 Samuel 18. Now what's happened in 1 Samuel 17 is that David has shown up and you had the whole Goliath thing going on. Where Goliath is intimidated, you, you know the story. He's in, in, intimidated the entire army. Everybody, everybody's been intimidated by this giant. Uh, including, including Jonathan, who was a warrior. And there were some great warriors in Israel, but this guy, you know what, there are times, there are times when, is, when, when any, <laughs> listen, there are times you're going to get fearful and you're going to get scared. And you're going to want to run that happens that hap- that's going to happen. I don't care who you are. It's going to happen to you we, we try to avoid that like the plague, but there are times we just turn to mush Because we get overwhelmed There's no way I cannot take this guy. I cannot take this guy. What happens David shows up David says I'll take that sucker in the name of the Lord God was with me with the bear. We took the bear. I took the bear. The Lord was with me I took a lion a lion. He took a lion Shoot, God will, who's this guy? God will deliver, and God did deliver him. Now watch that. So that's what's happening in 17. In verse 58, last verse of uh, 17, Saul said to him, whose son are you, young man? David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Next verse. Now it came about when he had finished speaking to Saul. Watch this. The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as himself. You know what Jonathan saw in this guy? He said, my gosh. My gosh, there's a man. There is a man. He had never seen such courage. He had never seen such faith. Now, did he have courage? Yeah. Did he have faith? Yeah. But he had never seen it like this before. And this was a guy he wanted to get to know. And what happens here, it says that the soul of Jonathan was, was knit to the soul of David. Gene Getz, in, in his work on David, says this. He says the word "net" literally means chained. Chained. That is, the soul of Jonathan was chained to the soul of David. They were bound to each other in an inseparable relationship and union. In a very true sense, they became soul brothers because they were knit together, they were chained together. Alexander White, the great Scottish preacher, said this of Jonathan and David. He said, You knit things together that are of the same kind, that are of the same substance and fiber and texture and strength and endurance. You knit a thread to a kindred thread. You knit a cord to a kindred cord. You knit a threefold cord to a threefold cord. You knit a chain of iron to a chain of iron, a chain of brass to a chain of brass, a chain of gold to a chain of gold, and a chain of gold of the same size and strength and purity, and beauty to a chain of gold of the same size and strength and purity and beauty." The point is, these guys were kindred spirits. These guys were out of the same cloth. These guys were same out of the same fabric. That's why their souls were knit together in love. They got each other. They got each other. So this afternoon at one o'clock, I'm doing a, a TV thing for Focus on the Family. Actually, it was a Skype thing. Uh, I thought it was a hunting trip. I'd never hunted Skype before. I didn't know what Skype was. But I sat down at the computer, and I Skyped. And they were doing this multimedia thing, social media. Uh, Anyway. And I'm staring at this computer, and all of a sudden, this guy comes on. And and these two ladies come on, and they're talking about the new movie, Courageous, that's coming out. The guys that did Fire Fireproof, They got a new movie, Courageous, coming out, which I hear is tremendous. And so the, one of the executive producers was on, and they were taking questions and all this. So then my part, they wanted me, because mo- the audience in the middle of the day is mostly wives, and they wanted me to answer the questions that wives had, well, how can we get our husbands to be more, how can we get our husbands to be spiritual leaders? How can we get our husbands you know, to, to take the leadership of the family? Because Courageous is about men stepping up and being better dads and all this stuff. So the executive producer is talking about the movie, and then they want me to answer the questions from the women. And I, and I said yes. I, I, I hadn't taken my, uh, my pills that morning. And I said, sure, I'll do that. <laughs> so I'm, I get a couple of questions. And the second question I got was, well, what can a woman do to encourage your husband in spiritual leadership, in the things of God? And I said, well, let me say this. I've spoken to two women's groups in the last 20 years. And they were 20 years apart. Because usually when I give my answer, nobody will call me for at least 20 years. So radios and computers are about to be switched off all over America. But let me go ahead and give you my answer. The question is, how can a wife listening encourage your husband to be a spiritual leader? I said, here's my first answer. It's twofold. Number one, don't try to be the Holy Spirit in his life. Don't even try to be the junior Holy Spirit. Uh, There are verses in Proverbs that talk about a nagging woman. Don't keep bringing it up, what you're concerned about. That's, you're gonna be a dripping faucet and you're gonna drive him away. That's number one. So don't try to be the Holy Spirit. Don't even try to be the junior Holy Spirit. Why don't you trust the Holy Spirit to bring about a change in his life? So you pray for him, you love the guy, which leads me to number two. If you want him to be, if you want him to be spiritually responsive, then you ought to be sexually responsive. This guy just woke up right over here. And I said, let me explain that real quick. Because what happens is a lot of wives, a, a lot of wives, uh, sex is not a big deal to them. And therefore, uh, because it's just not a big deal to them, it's something that they would rather just not be involved in all that much. But you see, it's a real big deal to your husband, because Amen is right. You gotta follow him. He needs counseling. He doesn't need counseling. No, he needs to get home. Is what he needs. <laughs> no, I, 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 you know, it's not, a, it's not all that big of a deal to, to gals, but it's a big deal to guys. But see, and I said, here's why I'm sharing this with you gals aren't wired like guys are. But I'm telling you, I am telling you, I, I mean, that's what I, I, I'm with men all the time, and I'm just telling you, it's huge. Sexual fulfillment is a big deal. And if you want your husband to be a spiritual leader and you want to encourage him in the things of God and you want him to be spiritually responsive then you better be sexually responsive because that is as biblical as him being a spiritual leader it's 1st corinthians chapter 7 read it don't keep turning him off don't keep saying no uh uh mm-hmm. You know what happened in the garden. I mean, Adam woke up, and there she was. She hadn't been there before. And, I mean, he'd never seen anything like that. And she was naked. And, and he wasn't quite, I mean, he just, and, and the Lord said, go over there and hug her. And, and he said, well, what's a hug? And so the Lord tells him what a hug is, and he goes over there and hugs her. And, and and, you know, he, he comes back, he's got a little smile on his face, and, and the Lord says, now go, go, go over there and kiss her. He goes, well, what, what's a kiss? The Lord tells him, what well, he goes over there and kiss her. And he comes back, and, you know, he's got a little, little bigger smile, and, and the Lord says, now you go over there and make love to her. And he says, well, then the Lord tells him, and he kind of looks, and he goes over there, and he comes right back. And he said, Lord, what, what's a what's headache? That's in the Hebrew text. It's really, it doesn't come out immediately. So that's what I told those women. Because both are spiritual and both are in the Bible. Right? You want to encourage that guy? And you know what? Keep him happy. Hey, if he's getting chocolate chip cookies at home, he's not going anywhere else to get them. I didn't say that, but that was kind of what I had in mind. Uh, Now, listen. We're in a screwed up culture. We're in a wicked, reprobate, godless culture that twists everything. And the reason I bring that up is because it was understood for centuries and centuries and centuries and centuries about the relationship that David and Jonathan had. It's a man to man, wholesome, godly friendship. You see? Oh, by the way, why did I tell those ladies that today? I told them that because, you see, because men and women are different. God made men and women to be different. And what happens is, a lot of times, is that women, just as guys, sometimes a wife is a mystery because we're not, we're not, all, we're not all female. We, we're not, we don't think the same. God is, He's made us different. And thank God for the difference. But sometimes they're a mystery. And sometimes we are a mystery to them. And sometimes we don't get each other. But guys, every once in a while, well, you'll meet a guy and you get each other. You just get each other. In a way that doesn't happen male and female. Why? Because you're, you're wired. You're hardwired the same. You're knit together. You're chained together. Chain of gold, chain of gold. Chain of brass, chain of brass. It all, it all, it all The hard wiring is there. And so you get it in a way that doesn't always happen with a female, who you love and you appreciate and you honor and all that stuff, but it's different. That's why in 2 Samuel 1, when Jonathan dies with Saul in battle, David says says that the love that they had for one another was greater than the love of women. And so in our screwed up culture, oh, they're homosexual. They're not homosexual. Come on. That's a perversion. This, is, this stuff's all gotten out of control. Oh, they had to be gay. They weren't gay. They were godly men. Where's my verse? I'm not moving until I get this verse. Let's have the ushers come forward. Can't find the verse. I'm going to move. Um, Dad, gum. Okay, I'll find it in a second. Huh? First Kings fifteen five. All right. I'll show you that it was a pure, clean, godly relationship. First Kings fifteen. Speaking of David, speaking of David's life. It says in verse five. David did what was right in the sight of the Lord and had, not a turn, and had not turned aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life except in the case of Uriah the Hittite. What was the deal with Uriah the Hittite? He had Uriah murdered. Why? Because David had committed sexual sin with his wife. Homosexuality is a sin just as heterosexual adultery is a sin. God says here That David followed the Lord all the days of his life, except for the incident with Uriah, Bathsheba, the sexual sin. If there had been a sin of homosexuality, it would have been here, but it's not there. Because there was no homosexuality, they were clean. It was a godly, wholesome relationship between godly men. Is what it was. So, just know that. And thank God for it. Uh, the second thing, back in uh, first, uh, got all these first and seconds and First Samuel, eighteen. So these guys are kindred spirit. You guys still with me? You following this? Okay. Hey, I want to say something. When when I, listen, we got all this stuff. We're at a point now where homosexuality is only to be accepted; it's to be approved. And if you don't approve it, man, you, you are in trouble, and they're coming after you. Okay, well, here's what we need to say. If, you, if someone struggles with homosexuality, and I said, when I preached for Chuck a few weeks ago, I mentioned something about Romans 1, so I get a letter from somebody. Fine. you know, It happens. About someone who struggled with homosexuality. Listen, to struggle with homosexuality, not everyone does that. Uh, but if, you, if that's your struggle, it's your struggle. Is it sin? Yeah. Just like the guy who, uh, who struggles with heterosexual adultery, who's a serial adulterer, and I've run into him. But do you say to the guy, oh, well, you know, that's okay, you're just made that way. No, it's sin. So if someone... I'm not doing anybody any favors. Well, I struggle with homosexuality. There's a guy who's a pretty well-known Christian singer. In the last few years, he came out... And he said, listen, I've struggled with homosexual thoughts all my life. I'm just, I, I, I'm tired of the struggle. I'm going to go live the homosexual lifestyle. I must be gay. No, no, you're a sinner and you deal with that. So we have guys in here that struggle with lust with other women. All, you know, guys do all the time. We, we all do. Well, I'm just tired of dealing with it. Well, shoot, I'm just going to go do it. No, no, you're not. No, no. You submit it to Christ. You fight it. You fight the good fight. If by the Spirit we are putting to death the deeds of the body, we shall live. See, the worst thing you can do is tell someone who is struggling with homosexuality, it's okay, it has God's approval, it's okay. No, No, it's not. Our job is to tell the truth. Our job is to declare the gospel. Christ wants to set us free. Whom the Son has set free is free indeed. Are we going to struggle with sin? Sure we are until our dying day. But Jesus is going to set us free and we're going to live forever. And Okay, so their souls were knit together. And then I want you to note what happened here. Then Jonathan, look at verse 3. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Um, Al Jansen has written this. He says, today most people don't understand what covenant means. Our culture is built on contracts, and everyone knows that a crackerjack lawyer can find a loophole if you really want out. So contracts get longer and longer as the parties try to close all possible loopholes, but litigation increases because people change their minds and want release from their agreements. Watch this. In ancient times, a covenant was a legal agreement, but with two major differences from contracts today. Number one, a covenant was made before deity, before God. And the penalty for breaking it was death. People might negotiate out of contracts, but you don't negotiate out of a covenant. A covenant hinged on two things. Number one, commitment. Commitment to the protection, the provision, and the well-being of the other party. Let me say that again. A covenant is a commitment to the protection, the provision, and the well-being of the other party. And the second aspect is, is permanence. There is never an expiration date on a covenant. You get that? Interesting, isn't it, that they made a covenant with one another. What did the covenant involve? Commitment to the protection, provision, and well-being of the other party, even to their children. And later, after Saul and Jonathan were killed, Jonathan had a son named Mephibosheth, and the nursemaid thought that there was a possibility that the Philistines were going to come and kill the boy. She picks him up. He's five years old. To run him out of the house, she drops him and he's crippled in his feet for the rest of his life. And the scripture later tells us that what happened in 2 Samuel 9-7 in fact, turn over there, it's just the next book. 2 Samuel 9-7 father is dead. In 2 Samuel 9, then David says, is there anyone yet left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? He had made a covenant with Jonathan. He said, he found out he's got a son who's crippled. And you know what that happened? You know what David did? He brought him to David's table. He ate at David's table for the rest of his life. He gave him the inheritance of his father and restored it to him. Why? Because he had made a covenant with his father, and it had no expiration date, and it involved protection and provision. That's called friendship. If you were to die, is there anybody in your life that you would entrust your family to? I hope there is. You'd trust them with anything. If you've got someone like that in your life, you're blessed. And why would you trust them to that level? Because you know, here we go, you know their character. That's where we were last week. What's the difference between an authentic leader and a synthetic leader? Character, character. They make a promise, they fulfill the promise. They're with you in hell and they're with you in high water. They'll tell you the truth when you don't want to hear it. They'll hurt you telling you the truth, but they're for you. They're, they're, you. You link arms. You go through life together. You see, that's the power of a godly, biblical friendship. And, as it was, and I loved it, the fact that these guys got up before I started the night and talked about the importance of not living the Christian life by yourself. Jesus didn't send them out one by one. Jesus sent them out two by two. The two are stronger than one. C.S. Lewis, when he was an atheist, a young college student, had a friend. They were very, very close. They both got called up to serve in World War I. And they made a pact with each other. They made a covenant that... If one of them did not come back from the war, the other would take care of the parent. Uh, Lewis's mother had died, so it was his father, who was aging. His friend had a mother and a a sister. And they, they, they covenanted with one another, if one of us doesn't come back, protection and provision for the rest of our lives. And Lewis's young friend was killed in battle and didn't come back. And Lewis took care of that woman and her daughter for the rest of his life because he had given his word, and he wasn't even a Christian yet. Oh, and by the way, later in life, he met a friend when he was teaching at Oxford, and they had some mutual interest, uh, but they also had some areas they didn't agree on, and they would take long walks and talk. Uh, and they really didn't see eye to eye when it came to God and Christianity, but they had so many other things in common, and they just kind of bonded. And they had so much in common. And in the areas where they didn't agree, they would take long walks and they would talk. And this other man, his name was J.R.R. Tolkien. And he and Lewis would talk for hours, and it was Tolkien that showed Lewis that if he looked into the Gospels and really looked at Christ, he'd see that all the great stories of literature that talk about redemption are all based on Jesus Christ. And they just kept talking. And as Lewis said in his own testimony, Lewis said, all I can tell you about how I was converted was that I got into the sidecar of my brother's motorcycle. He revved it up. I got in the sidecar we took off to go into town. And when I got in that sidecar, I wasn't a Christian. But 15 minutes later, when I got out of that sidecar, I was a believer in Christ. (laughs) It happened somewhere in that motorcycle sidecar. But it all began months and months and months earlier talking with J.R.R. Tolkien. Oh, by the way, Tolkien had these ideas for stories, but he didn't have a lot of confidence. And he would write, but he wouldn't let anybody read them. He was so insecure. And it was C.S. Lewis who said, why don't you let me take a look at him? And he said, okay. You know why he said okay? Because he trusted him. And if you know anything about those two men, they sharpened each other. And it was quoted earlier, Proverbs 27.7, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. You just need one or two in your whole life. You say, Steve, I don't have a guy like that. Why don't you ask God to give you one? Just ask him. In his way, in his time. It's worth waiting for. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the model that these two men show us. If if we had more time we would see how when David was on the run Jonathan would stand up to his father and confront his own father about his hatred for David. Jonathan really chose David over his father. He defended David. He was a true friend. David knew that Jonathan would die for him. What a remarkable man. What a remarkable man who, instead of being resentful to David, who was anointed to be the next king. You see, in many ways, that should have been his position. But instead of resenting him, instead of being bitter, he celebrated David's promotion. He wasn't about himself. He was about your kingdom being furthered. May we be such a man in our own life and on our own desires, May, may we glory in the promotion of others. Even when we think we're deserving and entrust our souls to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Yes.